Welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable, a running podcast where we shake out and purposely go off track on any and everything related to our favorite hobby. Get ready to get uncomfortable along with our guests, because growth only happens outside of your comfort zone. Here are your hosts, Ines Babea, Jamie Chen, and Nathan Schiller. Hello, I'm Nathan Schiller. I'm Ines Bebea, and welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable. And I'm Jamie Chen. We're very excited to welcome our guest today, Gary Corbett. Gary Corbett is a dedicated historian, historian documenting African-American long-distance runners, and he is the force preserving the legacy of his father, Ted Corbett. Ted Corbett was the co-founder of the New York Road Runners Club, in 1957 and a member of the New York Pioneer Club, a running club founded in Harlem in 1936 by three African-American men. Well, given all the history that Ted Corbett left in running, it's only fitting that we include him in our sports legacy moment. Indeed. So let's go back to the 1952 Olympic Games in Helsinki when Ted Corbett represented the United States in the marathon, the first African-American man to do so. Uh, At the time, the U.S. was still a highly segregated country. For instance, the landmark Supreme Court case uh, decision, Brown versus the Board of Education, was not until 1954. So Gary, although you were just one year old during those Olympic Games, is it nonetheless possible that you have vivid memories of this time and of your father's importance at that time as an elite black long-distance runner? Well, that all came later in life. You mentioned the uh, 1954 Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, The day before that uh, decision, my father won the National Marathon Championship, uh, May 16th, 1954, which was my third third birthday. Um, uh, You know, as I you know as as I uh, grew older and uh, later in life, uh, I uh, fully understood the significance. Okay. And also, your father was born in 1919 in South Carolina, and then he moved to Cincinnati, where he ran in high school and college, where he also learned a bachelor's degree. What lessons did he share with you about what life was like back then for a Black man in America, again, still during a time that the country was very much segregated? And the fact that, you know, he, he went to college, he ran, got a degree. What did he share with you about that time? Well, uh, certainly as a, as an athlete uh, in the Jim Crow era, there was uh, uh, discrimination and there were uh, situations where the track University of Cincinnati track team could not uh, compete. Certain schools would not uh, compete. University of Kentucky was one. Um, and there was difficulty uh, when traveling to get, uh, get meals to eat as a team uh, at certain restaurants. Um, a big, uh, you know, big lesson uh, that I, I'm learning from my father is that, that uh, the importance of education. Uh, he was uh, a lifelong learner. Uh, uh, he, uh, even in his 80s, he was always uh, taking classes, always reading, always uh, trying to improve himself. Um, and uh, so that's, that's, that's a big takeaway. Uh, how seriously he took his studies. Uh, he, he did everything in a scholarly manner. 
And as I'm uh, going through all his papers and organizing his papers, I, uh, I see that very vividly. Um, and he didn't throw anything away also. Uh, so he's, <laughs> he, he was about uh, documenting, documenting things. Um, uh, for example, all his letter writing, he did in duplicate. Uh, so I'm okay. able to track his life through his letters. Uh, I'm able to tra track the evolution of the sport through his letters. Uh, so I plan to write a book, a book of letters that, that I'm working on and I've started to organize his letters. You know, back uh, in the University of Cincinnati days after graduating, he, uh, he got very fit. Uh, he ran a, a two-mile time trial uh, that was near American and world record time, and it ran a 300-yard three, time trial, which was also close to 440-yard American record. But he, uh, he was fearful of traveling back then because he didn't know what awaited him, uh, so he didn't travel. And uh, so it was a missed, missed opportunity uh, before he went into the war uh, to exploit his uh, conditioning he had at the time. But this, is, this was the year and uh, he, he was, it wasn't worth, uh, he didn't feel it was worth uh, chancing it. I know that you feel it is important for people to understand the origins of running. So I'm just gonna build on, you know, I think what you just mentioned about your father's hesitation and things that, you know, he's, he was aware of during that time. What inequities or barriers have you noticed in history that have prevented black runners from participating? Well, uh, I don't know that there's, um, I think the barriers been more uh, probably with co coaches that were steering uh, athletes to sprinting versus distance running. I saw, I, I came across a beautiful letter that Sprinting. I, I, that I can't find. This letter was from an athlete who said he wished he, this was written in around 1970. And the, the athlete said he wished he had known about my father because he felt he could have, he could have been a good distance runner. But his coach instead steered him to the, the sprints. Um, there's, 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 there was never any real barriers uh, in terms of my father or uh, Lou White, a gentleman who, a uh, black gentleman, a teammate of my father's who preceded my father. He was third at Boston and third at Yonkers, the national marathon championship and a national 15 kilometer cha champion. Uh, there really weren't any barriers. I mean, I think it was just being exposed to the sport and uh, a lot of that is if you don't see people uh, uh, like yourself doing it. And, uh, and back then, so few people were doing it. You gotta, you gotta remember this was a very, uh, uh, a big race when I was growing up would be 35, 40 runners. That was a big race. And wow. uh, uh, the first, uh, the Cherry Tree Marathon, which was, uh, precursor to the New York City Marathon, 1959 had uh, 12 starters and four finishers. Uh, this this was this was common back then in terms of the size size of the fields. Um, I, I think I think now I mean now the, the, you know the, the the cost of racing is a is a it's got to be a barrier with some people. 
back then, back then races were free or maybe a dollar. So Gary, touching on some of these themes uh, that you brought up specifically, I want to point to something that I found interesting in your website and ask you about it. First of all, for our listeners who haven't been to tedcorbett.com, um, the book I'm sure will be great, but the website is amazing. It's an incredible compilation of so many things. And I love the way you organized it through the milestones. And I was going through some of the testimonials and um, I got started distance running by Hal Higdon. So I, I was curious what he said. And he had this incredible tribute to your father because he knew him from so long ago. And he suggests in a kind of a side comment that back in the 50s and 60s, there may have been a higher percentage of black male runners in distance running. And he gives three reasons because we haven't yet gotten to the um, world, you know, global explosion of Kenyan runners. Um, we, no one faced, you know, $250 race fees. And also because there was a real meritocratic component to the athletics of the sport itself. So I was wondering what you make um, as a historian of the African-American participation in distance running today. Is it something that you see and think about and wonder what's become of it? Um, how do you take read of this whole situation? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've interviewed Hal and I've heard him say, say that. And there were uh, uh, Chicago area where he was, his origins were uh, the New York area, the Philadelphia area. Uh, there were black runners. And uh, again, the, the the size of the fields were so small that uh, it, you know, it was a decent percentage uh, of runners. I, I, I'd like to even document that at some point to, to get, a, get, get a hard number on that. Um, um, and I, th I, I think the sport today has an opportunity to, uh, a sport that has been flat in numbers and declining in some cases uh, needs a new infusion of runners. And I think the uh, sport needs to target uh, different ethnic minorities and uh, as potential uh, race participants. Uh, I think it's, it's a, there's a, there's a, a running, there's a, there's a, a running boom, another running boom waiting to happen if done right. I think it, they think it can be done right. And I think all the, uh, um, the current Black Lives Matter movement uh, will uh, will spark that. It, it already has sparked things, and uh, there's no reason why uh, the numbers can't improve. But I, I have seen Hal's uh, comment like that. And uh, again, you have races with 20 runners. You uh, you know you have uh, uh, five six black runners in there. It's a decent percentage. I think if I can go back to uh, something that you had mentioned earlier, that um, your father was competing for the University of Cincinnati, and then they will travel, and there will be places where um, I said at that time that he couldn't eat, you know, they wouldn't serve him, or maybe even places to where he couldn't stay. Um, so how did he mentally prepare, prepare about, um, you know, going to places where he knew that his presence will just provoke this this strong feelings for example like i know your father ran 
the Boston Marathon in 1951. And I know um, there was a time that he ran a race somewhere in New York and that he couldn't find a place to stay with us. So he had to come back to the city. I wonder if you could just share a little bit more about that perspective, like what he experienced and then when he's sharing these stories with you, what do you take away from that? Yeah, I, um, uh, in 2019 in the Little Rock National Black Marathon Association, uh, uh, Hall of Fame induction ceremony. I laid out uh, years of things my father faced during the Jim Crow era. The first time I ever really put it all together. And uh, the uh, 19, I remember the 19, the 1960s uh, incident uh, where he was traveled up to uh, Poughkeepsie, New York uh, to get a good night's sleep before running a 37 mile race from Poughkeepsie to Yonkers, New York. Uh, he had to come home. He couldn't find lodging. There's no, there's no other reason he couldn't find it other than his, his skin color. Um, the University of Cincinnati, uh, they, the team just didn't, did not uh, compete against these schools. So they had a, 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 their schedule, their opportunities to race were lessened. Uh, you know, they, the schools were clear that they didn't want uh, black uh, people on the campus and didn't want to compete against a team that was integrated. So the, uh, the coach, they just dropped those schools from their uh, program. Uh, uh, I don't know if father said, for example, Cl Cl uh, the state capital of Ohio, Columbus, they had trouble uh, finding uh, places to eat uh, for the team uh, back then. Um, mentioned the Boston Marathon, 1958. Now my, my father didn't share uh, these stories with me. I, I've just, I've just organized uh, my audio tape interviews I've done with my father. I've got 30 hours of interviews that I did with my father, and uh, I, and I tell people when you're you're interviewing your elders, you need to also interview their close circle of friends uh, because they're not going to always tell you everything. Uh, and I learned. Uh, some of the discrimination things my father faced, I learned from other people. For example, coming back from the 1958 Boston Marathon, a race that he had to run uh, as an unofficial participant because he failed the, the physical. Uh, yeah, back then, uh, runners had to pass a physical to run the marathon. The three top marathoners in 1958 American Marathoners all failed this physical. They ran the race and finished in the top 10, but as unofficial finishers. Well, I learned uh, maybe uh, 10 years ago interviewing uh, my father's teammate, Rob McNichol, you know, Pioneer Club teammate, that uh, they, in a, on the Connecticut Turnpike or some road in Connecticut coming back from uh, Boston, uh, they, uh, they were not served. My father would not be served, so they left. But I, I, my father didn't tell me this. And, uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure I asked for stories uh, and this didn't, uh, and there, there, are, there are a lot of others. There are others. I'm, sure, I'm sure. So what happened at the Poughkeepsie uh, race? Who won so that he, race? He, uh, uh, he uh, came home and, and then he, he found a runner that was going back driving up there that morning and, and got a ride with him. Uh, he finished either first or second in the race. I can't recall if, which, which it was. It was a, uh, 37 mile race and uh, again a race that you know maybe had at most 10 runners and it was a handicap race too uh, this was a running format that uh, 
the sport had back then with small numbers. So the uh, slowest runners would go first, and then the fastest runners would start at what's called scratch. Uh, uh, not a format you could do today with these numbers, but back then it was a, it was a, it was a viable format. I, I know earlier you mentioned that um, the the next running boom could be from communities of color to be introduced to running. How do you think, as someone who has studied the history of long distance running, how how do you think this sport can really like venture into communities where like like now the one of the barriers could be access to not just athletic shoes and, and trainers, but also access to being able to pay for races. So how do you think the running community can open doors in that sense to other people? Well, there's, there's so many now, uh, with, with the black community, there's so many black running clubs now. Um, so that's, you know, it, it's happening uh, on a kind of grassroots level. Uh, but I think the sport needs to support these organizations uh, the companies the corporations the sponsors yeah and 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 the sports and, and the big players in the sports the yeah. committees the ias you know yeah uh, it's um and i think it's i think it's going to happen i mean there's, there's certain things that are starting to happen in the sport uh, uh there'll be more the major running organizations will have a, a, a diversity a person of a diversity vp of some sort on boards of directors and within um, within uh, running organizations, uh, New York Roadrunners is, is, is doing that, and I expect others will uh, will do the same. Uh, it's uh, you know there's there's two levels here that that I, that I want to see happen. I want to see more um, excellence in athletics from black runners. Um, we had Peyton Thompson uh, on your show recently, and uh, uh, she's one of 18 runners that I've documented that have broken three hours in a marathon. And this is in the, the history of the, of the sport. Now, that's, not, that's not a big number, and we think there'd be more, but, uh, but people need to be uh, inspired and see people like themselves uh, excelling at the sport. So I'm, op I'm hoping that, that my work will uh, help inspire uh, excellence both in, uh, among African-American runners. Um, but then you have a, a sport that's primarily uh, people running uh, recreationally. Uh, this is a huge difference from what the sport was years ago. Uh, everybody that competed years ago was fast. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, the, now, the, and, but it's becoming more mainstream I see that it's not just fast people. I mean, it was amazing to see Peyton Thomas, but she talked about access. Um, speaking of, of NYRR, has NYRR reached out to you? What do you suggest that they do to bring full circle back to the legacy that your father had wanted to leave it with? You just talked about maybe some organizations might have like a VP of diversity. So I was curious, did NYRR ever reach out to you? Oh yes. Uh, well, I, I um, the rebuild uh, NYR movement. I, I, I got kind of looped in uh, because I, I got a text one night around eleven 
uh, about this. And then I went to the website and the first thing that popped up was my father's name. And uh, then, a, uh, then a few words or sentences later, it was asked for the, the uh, uh, resignation of uh, Michael Capriasso. Uh, I have a good, had a good relationship with Michael. And uh, uh, so I, I sent something around uh, immediately. But I got, uh, I got it involved in, in, in my own way in terms of just interviewing people that uh, employees past and present uh, uh, to assess. And I shared that information with the board. And um, uh, so I, I, I didn't need another project, but it, it uh, turned into a little bit of a project. But it's, you've, uh, you've always kind of like had one foot in NYRR in a way. Yeah, I was I was uh, I was seven years old when uh, the club started in 1958. And I, you were born into the club. <laughs> you know, yeah, I went to all the races, knew all the runners, and uh, you know my father uh, uh, printed a newsletter using a mimeograph machine, and uh, I would pass out the newsletters at races. You weren't surprised with the rebuild NYRR, were you? Well. You know, I, I, I mean, they, they knew there were some issues uh, going on there because they, they had done some focus groups before the NYR surfaced, rebuild NYR surfaced. So they, they were aware there were, there were, there were issues there. Um, um, let, let me uh, uh, just say something about Michael because yeah, again, I'm not, I was, I come in a couple times a year, and uh, but Michael's been very supportive of, uh, of my work, and uh, the uh, New York Roadrunners Club was was going to be a big sponsor in a, a New York Historical Society exhibit uh, featuring the New York Pioneer Club. Uh, he had green lighted this. He greenlighted other projects in terms of things that I'm, I'm doing to preserve my father's legacy and the history of the sport. Uh, he also I was in a meeting with him about a year ago, and uh, as part of the exhibit uh, at the New York Historical Society, he wanted to honor Percy Sutton, whose hundredth birth birthday was uh, was uh, sometime in November, and it wouldn't have been a five borough New York marathon without Percy Sutton. Uh, green lighting it. So I say all this just to say that uh, I had a good relationship with Michael. And so when I re the rebuild, uh, and I, I was able to reach uh, the individuals on Instagram that, that asked him to take my name, my father's name off of that. I, I kind of understand to a degree, you know, they're interested in using my father's name, but you gotta, you, you know, you gotta, you have to, uh, these, these folks have been anonymous. Uh, uh, you have to ask, and I, I don't. I don't know who who these individuals are. Could be one person. Could be a couple people. Could be uh, I don't know what their ethnicity is or anything. So, uh, and they they took my father's name off of it. So I, I but I did get involved with that. And I, and I wanted to just say in terms of this with Michael, he's, he'd been. I had a good relationship with him, so that's why I responded when I saw saw that as I did now. You know, there's obviously workplace issues uh, that need to be corrected 
And uh, that's well, if I can ask, I guess it's like might might be a two parter. So one, is it the fact that they are anonymous that bothers you? that you would prefer that they were upfront about who they are and show their faces. And then the, and I'm glad that you brought up uh, Rebuild NYIR because as you said in the previous in this conversation, we're talking about like access and opening doors for different minority groups. And, and I think just using NYIR as an example, the fact that races are now so expensive, it limits who can participate you know, like, for example, you know, whether like the marathon, I know we're just going to assume that people from New York who are not from New York don't know, don't know this, this process, but like you pay for like nine races and then volunteer for one event. And then additionally, you still pay for the fee for the marathon. So then that could eat you up like maybe like a thousand dollars, you know, to just to run that one race. So I think like the issues that rebuild NYR are pretty much a lot of the things that you were saying, you know, about how, so then how can, so I understand that NYR has a relationship with you through your father, but at the same time, you mentioned that hiring like a VP of diversity, but then USA historian probably know better than us that as an organization, I think your father was the only ever African-American president of this club to this day. So I think even them and the faces that they're putting out to like attract sponsors and uh, create relationships, they're not putting a man who looks like your father. You're right. If you think about leadership. To bring people in. So what do you think about that then, Gary? Well, uh, let me, the, uh, my issue with the rebuild was just, you should ask before you use someone's name like that, and uh, that that's simple. I, I I think they they should should not be uh, to negotiate too. I think you should be up up front of who you are. But uh, uh, that's that's my, my opinion. Um, I think this I think the sport is going to change in, in a lot of ways over this. I'm optimistic, uh, but the the economics of putting on a race is is, is expensive proposition. And this is, uh, I don't understand it fully. Uh, I think the fees are, is, is a problem, of course, uh, putting, uh, to run races. I, uh, I agree uh, wholeheartedly with that. And uh, I think there are ways that uh, maybe that, 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 that can be helped. Uh, people can be helped with that. But uh, and I, think, I, think, I think that'll happen, but uh, I'm not sure uh, how or when but I think it can happen. So have you thought at all about how, how you said you're not sure how it might happen, but like what, what will, if the economic proposition just spirals out of control and it just gets more and more expensive every year, how do we stop that? Or do you see um, New York roadrunners coming up with some, you know, innovative way to lead because they're really the leaders in the country um, in that, in that area. Um, do you see promising stuff? I think I think the sport uh, needs to uh, through, through sponsorships and uh, and so forth uh, probably perhaps needs to find funding to help uh, help people. I don't, I don't know how you I, you got to decide who's in need. I, I think I think this is already being done, but it's probably not uh, being talked about or or promoted. Um, 
It uh, talk about insurance costs, uh, protection, closing the roads, permits, marketing. I always, I don't know. I mean, it, I'm not in the background. And I don't, I don't, I'm not, uh, I haven't looked at a budget or race or anything. So I don't, uh, but I'm told that the econo economics are difficult. And uh, uh, so it's, it's an issue. It's an issue. Yeah. Well, I guess I, you know, that's, I'm glad that. So what would you like to see from Rebuild NYR? Like, what do you see yourself working with them to address these issues if they are more upfront about who they are? Because they're talking about an institution that is, that your father built, you know, that your father has a race in every year where a lot of people come to support, especially Black men run. What would you like would you consider working with them to be part, maybe the conduit between them and leadership? Because you've said that you have this relationship with them. Uh, well, I, I, all I did was reach out to them and asked them not to use my father's name. Uh, uh, you know, I have an interest in, in the, the club, uh, uh, the organization function in a, uh, in the right manner. Uh, a, a workplace culture should be correct. People should be treated fairly. And uh, when I uh, did reach out to the uh, board, uh, a couple members of the board, I, I, I was confident that they were going to address this. I, before I called them, I was concerned maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they, you know, sometimes things just get pushed aside and don't really be not get addressed. And in my, in my, uh, a letter after learning about this, I said that if there are issues, they need to be addressed. Um, and there, there are issues, and I think they are being addressed. I, uh, I've got, I've got a full plate just uh, working with my father's legacy and history to sport. Um, yeah, I'll help if I can, but uh, I'm not looking for a. Uh, I, I think what I. Uh, I, what I did supply in terms of talking with people, and I shared that with the board. I thought they, they thought it was helpful, so I'm I'm pleased with that. Uh, I'm not not looking for an active uh, active role uh, with the uh, rebuild movement. Earlier, you mentioned that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement might be a way that more people are maybe attracted to running because, like, a lot of people have use running to protest is what do you think about that as a historian who has seen running used in different manners well I, I, when i'm getting at with the black lives matter uh the uh tony reed the executive director of the national black marathon association uh, uh brokered a deal with the major marathons to uh provide bids uh for these races for the next few years. This was, this was done on Juneteenth day, June 19th of this year. And uh, this is huge. This is, we talk about funding and what uh, part of the fund would be used with, with my research and the educational side of this. And some of the fund would be used for training uh, and, and coaching. And uh, uh, I think the rebuild movement uh, I think these individuals were empowered by the Black Lives Movement, and uh, so I think it's this is this is this has swept the world. 
these uh, racism coming to light like it has. And I think in our sport, it's, uh, it's going to have a, a positive impact. I think it already is. As a historian, why do you think it's important to document the history of black runners? It hasn't been done. I mean, it's, it's, I, uh, uh, one of my mentors, Pam uh, Cooper Jenkins, uh, in her book, American Marathon, she, she, she got out, got out, got at a lot of uh, black achievements in, the, in our sport, but I asked her, did, how, how, did she get it all? And she said, no, she got maybe 50%. Uh, and I've, and I've produced a timeline from 1880 to, to 1979, um, and I didn't get it all. I still think there's, I think I know there's still um, black athletes from the 19, around 1915 to the early 1930s that uh, we need people to, to do the research on. And, uh, and it's not hard now because everything's online and uh, you can read the black newspapers of, of that day and, uh, and get, at the, get at this information. Um, a lot of people feel my father was the first great black distance runner. And one of the reasons I wanted to do the timeline was to prove that that wasn't the case. Uh, there was mm. plenty of black achievements in the sport and um, this timeline is the first of its kind. The, the uh, all-time list of American-born black female marathoners is the first of its kind. Now, Shawana White asked a simple question of how many black females have qualified for the Olympic trial marathon. Nobody knew the answer. Um, so I, how I, many? <laughs> uh, well, the, the qualified, it's probably around six or so. Well, I have to, ch I have to double check that, but, uh, um, but the, 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 uh, no one knew the answer. Were you, and, su were you surprised at Peyton being, I mean, it's 29, it's 2020. Were you surprised that she was like the first one? Well, she's, she's, uh, she's around fifth on the list. And uh, uh, and she's I mean she's got tremendous potential. I mean, uh, yeah, she's she's new at it. And there there are athletes like her that uh, were good college track athletes, uh, but they need the incentives to keep going. Uh, they need coaching and they need sp sponsorship. You know this this is uh you know I was thinking about this uh, recently that you know that. Athletes today, uh, you know, they, they have sponsors, they, uh, they train, they rest and all this thing. And, you know, my father's era, these, this, this was pure amateur. Uh, he full-time, he was running 200 mile weeks working full-time. Uh, and some, some, some nights teaching at Columbia physical therapy. Uh, it's, uh, not only him, but that that, that generation, those two earlier years. Two hundred miles. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, Gary, I, I wanted to ask you actually a two part question because um, first thing is, do you have any sense that 
um, the black runners of today in the United States know about the history you're talking about? And then the second question is, when someone runs 200 miles a week to work, that shows an incredible amount of dedication. I'm curious um, how that dedication impacted you in your own life to study these incredibly, you know, small periods in history and, and mine them for a wealth of information about what really happened. Well, it's a lot of life lessons there in terms of being consistent, uh, dedicated to the task. And, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to try to apply, apply those. Uh, my father uh, learned a lesson uh, in, in ninth grade in terms of just applying, uh, uh, working harder at something to achieve uh, a grade, a better grade. And uh, he applied that throughout his life and everything he did. And uh, it's a good, it's a good axiom for all of us to, uh, uh, to do. So it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of modeling there that you can uh, draw inspiration from. Uh, and you get, but you got to find the right balance. See, he, he overtrained and that cost him, uh, I feel that cost him a world record 100 mile track race, a 24 hour track race. Mm. If he had, had trained less, maybe he would have set a world record. Both those races were off days for him. He set American records, but they were very soft records for what he was, was capable of. Um, uh, your other question? <laughs> that's, that's a great answer. Um, I, and I, I, you know, I have so many comments because there's so much in your father's life that's so amazing. Um, but yeah, my other question was about um, your sense of what yeah. younger black runners in the United States today know about this legacy. Is it, are they surprised when they hear, oh, Gary who, Ted who, or do they say, oh yeah, we know who Ted Corbett is. He, he founded our, our sport. It's better, but it's still, uh, it's still kind of low awareness. Um, like the New York Pioneer Club story is, uh, um, um, I'm hoping, uh, and I think that's going to change over the next year. Um, the New York Roadrunners has agreed to uh, do a one-year campaign to promote this story. Uh, so it's, it's improving, but I've, you know, I've heard stories from a lot of people, people, uh, uh, Michael Rogers recently left New York Roadrunners. He, he said that he was, he worked, he's told this story numerous times. He was working at New York Roadrunners, knew the name Ted Corbett, but didn't know he was a black gentleman. And Michael Rogers is a black, black, uh, black man. Uh, and oh, that's, that was, un that, that's unfortunate. Well, but that was common. That was mm -hmm. common. Uh, you know, my so that father, has to change. Yeah, my father was not a big promoter of himself, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, um, yeah, and uh, but that that's that's very common. Well, so what what else you you mentioned that you've been documenting this history, and what has surprised you the most in the research? What have you come across that said, huh, I never would have expected that? Well, one big uh, learning, learning point was the pedestrian era. Uh, my father would often talk about running 600 miles in six days, walking 
100 miles in uh, 24 hours, under 24 hours. And uh, I, I didn't know, and this is after his passing, I didn't really know the, the significance of these marks, but these were the best marks of the, the pedestrians. This was the runners and walkers of the 1880s. They were professional athletes. Uh, and uh, those, were, those, were, those were the best standards that were achieved. And there were black uh, individuals competing. Uh, at the time, it was the biggest sport in the land. Uh, that, that was a big, uh, a big learning, uh, learning thing for me. And, uh, and also the whole timeline. I mean, particularly uh, uh, uncovering that uh, Aaron Morris was the first uh, black man to uh, uh, do well at Boston in 1919, uh, Boston Marathon. Uh, Earl Johnson, a two-time Olympian, 1920, 1924. Um, my father always said there were there were uh, great black athletes uh, before him, but I I didn't. We didn't get into the names of them, and I didn't do the research uh, at that time. Uh, now again, my father didn't throw anything away, so I. Uh, you mentioned earlier, Nathan, about the website. I mean, he, because he didn't throw anything away, uh, it, though it's been difficult, I, I, that's why I could compile what I've been able to do. Uh, You're writing a book, right? Where, where are you at in the process of that project? Well, just, just outlining two chapters. Uh, one would be his uh, races, his commenting on races and letters and the course measurement uh, movement, which is his biggest contribution to the sport. Uh, this, this, there was a lot of drama going on in 1964, 65, 66, in starting the course measurement movement. Uh, races were not uh, uh, helpful in, in, in getting the, their courses properly measured. And uh, I've got this all documented in his letters. Um, and so, it, for for his for his historical pros, uh, prosperity, prosperity, uh, posterity, um, the letters are—it's uh, uh, not even about selling a lot of books. It's just getting this documented. It's, it's his own words. Uh, he did not write his his, his autobiography. The autobiography was written on him. But this is, is, is a way of getting his own words out there. So I, I feel that's the most important uh, book project that I'll, that I'll do. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, you certainly have like a lot of history, I guess, even maybe, I think the fact that he ran 200 miles a week, you know, to and from work, and maybe even talk a little bit about his work as a physical therapist, I guess the, the way that your father saw the human body and then also that you know he went to NYU also at a time where I don't know if it's still that college was completely integrated and what opportunities that he found like in the medical field you know his impact as a physical therapist yeah yeah thanks for asking because he he's really is, is he's as revered in physical therapy as he is in running uh, and there are times where I could make a case that he's even his impact was even greater in physical therapy. Uh, and if it wasn't for the course measurement, I could do it easily. But here you have an individual who traveled the world to learn the, the, the latest modalities uh, of the time, 
he was a clinician, so he had patients, and then he was a teacher. So he taught generations of physical therapists. And uh, the stories I've heard in terms of his ability to heal people uh, are pretty phenomenal. And as I go through his papers and all, I mean, he, he again, he was, he, he applied all, uh, all approaches to his practice. Uh, someone recently said he was probably one of the first holistic physical therapists in the country. He was talking about acupuncture in the 50s. Uh, nobody was advocating weight training. Uh, he was, along with the uh, famous uh, Australian coach, Percy Sarity. Um, We've talked so much about your father. I'm just curious if you could tell us about your experience as a runner. Like, do you ever get up on a Monday morning and you think, you know, the best way to spend the next seven days is I'll run 201 miles just to be my father. Do you ever think about that? No. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I love to work out. And uh, when I, uh, my more productive days, my energy, more energy days are after a good workout. Uh, so I prefer working out in the morning and, uh, I never, uh, I didn't, I, I later in life gained an interest in ultra marathons, but I, 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 I'm not going to do anything about it. But I, uh, if I started early, I probably would have uh, tried some ultra marathons. Uh, um, hmm. uh, so it never, it never was a, a strong interest till late in life and probably too late now. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I enjoy running. I, I work out three times a week. It's never too late. That's true. I, I mean, running is not just about running. It's, you know, overall health, mental well-being. I mean, but access to healthcare, like physical therapy, mm -hmm. it, that makes an impact on distance running. I think your father was pretty successful as a distance runner because he also studied the body. Um, but that's, a, that's another barrier, though, for, for people of color, access to healthcare. Yes, yes. And... Uh, he was uh, he was pioneering in that field because there weren't uh, uh, there were very few there's still I think very few blacks practicing physical therapy to this day. And he joined the American Physical Ther Therapy uh, Association in 1947. Um, but something if I could ask him uh, talk to him today, I'd I'd, I'd want to get at he was injured a lot <laughs> and. Um, 200 miles a week? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know. I have his diaries. So I have all his training diaries from the 40s on. And I'm, I'm shocked at how often he was injured, but how he could get himself, patch himself up mm. and go out the next day. Uh, there, there's, there's some self-healing things that he was doing to himself uh, to keep himself going. Uh, like what? Uh, well, I know he would use a, 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 a marble uh, and roll it on, on his foot. I remember him doing that all the time. Uh, but massage, uh, pressure points, uh, he, he knew he was, he was a master at all these uh, techniques. And I, I would, I'd like to, to ask him about it because he was, uh, I'm, 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 I'm shocked at how often he was hurt. Feel like I'm there nowadays. Uh, I just, I just feel like I can't get past. I don't know. I can't find my groove either. So I'm always studying, um, like holistic ways. I'm, I have definitely done acupuncture. And I'm a firm believer in it now. I've done. I have all these tools to roll. I use frozen bottles. I mean, 
I get it. Like, but I still love running. They all still hurt me, <laughs> but I still love it. I understand. <laughs> I'm, I'm the exact same way, Jamie. Um, everything. The frozen bottle was a great trick on the foot. Um, Gary, I wanted to ask you something else about that I came across on the website. There's an anecdote. I should have written it down, but it's about um, your father's VO2 max. And you, you have something <laughs> where he goes to a, a training or like an experiment and they try to measure his VO2 max. And one of the cardiologists faints in amazement at how, <laughs> at how high it was. So um, I take you at your word. But is that true? Did that really, really happen? And what was your father's VO2 max, if you don't mind sharing? Uh, I don't, I don't know the exact <laughs> figure, but I, 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 I yeah, David Costell, Ball State, uh, did did studies on uh, distance runners in the '60s, and my father was part of that group. And uh, Ed Winrow tells that story, uh, so I'll. I'll I'll trust Ed, Ed, Ed Winrow on that. Uh, he was an associate with Dave uh, Costum, a, a pioneering uh, distance runner and New York road runner. So we'll take them all at their word. I, I just, what do you think your father would have been like today as a, as a runner? Well, would he, he would, been... I mean, you know, comparing errors is, is, is it's, 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 it's not easy. Um, but during the 50s, when he was at his fastest, he was uh, uh, in the top three uh, American marathoners for most of the uh, 50s. Um, so I would, I, would, uh, I would say he would be uh, uh, in this day and age with uh, better shoes and, and more hydration. Uh, so back then they, they didn't have, they would run marathons without any water. Um, wow. And they didn't have all those, those goos and uh, those high tech sneakers that have like now carbon fiber foot plates in them. You're like, you have airplanes as your feet on your feet now. Yeah. And races would start at noon. So, so <laughs> oh, God. Boston, oh my started, God. Boston started at noon, Yonkers started at noon, and said, you know, hot days, these were brutal, br brutal affairs. Uh, I think he, you know, he would, he would train less. Uh, if you can look back at his, his, his career and he would, he would uh, train a lot less uh, because he overdid it. And uh, like I said earlier, that, 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 that cost him. Um, or maybe he might supplement it with like other forms of training, probably like weight training or something. Well, he was, yeah, he was, as I said earlier, he was an early advocate of weight training when, when others, including Arthur Lydia said no to weight training. Uh, and uh, yeah. Gary, earlier you mentioned that your father played a role in helping out um, measuring the, mar the marathon distance. Did he, um, so you said that he traveled, like what did he do? Like were there places that people were running marathons? Like would you go to a marathon and be like, no, is, um, you know, we're doing 42, 42 is, I was just gonna get give kilometers, I'm sorry. <laughs> you 42K? Know, like, exactly, I was like, why am I thinking in kilometers at this moment? I have no idea. Uh, but, um, <laughs> so what, did, what did he do exactly like he would go out and run like were people just like 
you're going to call it like a 30 miler, like we would call that a marathon today. And then you go to another city and then next week it'll be like, no, it's actually just 24 miles. Like how, yeah. what role did he play in that? Yeah, the races were typically uh, measured by cars and uh, they were at least a half mile off in general. What do you mean by cars? Like, were they like, did they light up cars or did a car run? The uh, odometer, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so they they would they would do it by a car method, and uh, uh, so a race, uh, a ten mile race, could either be nine and a half miles or ten and a half miles. Uh, the <laughs> when my father in 1954 won the national marathon championship, the the distance was 26.8 miles. Uh, you cannot have a uh, a legitimate sport if you can't verify records. Uh, so. The, the course measurement movement that he started with, uh, with uh, publishing in 1964 a monograph that uh, outlined uh, how to properly do this uh, using a, a bicycle and a, uh, a, a counter. An actual counter, like the, the thing yeah. that you roll on the floor and count. Wow. So on the bike and the counter and doing a, and, uh, getting a calibrated course to calibrate the bike uh, before and after you're measuring the course. Uh, this is a system that's still used today effectively, uh, but it was a big problem uh, getting it because courses would go all over the place in terms of distance. Did he have, how often did he run the New York City Marathon on his own? Well, he, he ran uh, New York City Marathon, he ran uh, the first years in the uh, Central Park, uh, um, and then he ran the summer uh, out of Borough. He he developed uh, bronchoasthma in 1974, and that that ended his competitive running, uh, sub three hour kind of marathon uh, career. Um, so he ran marathon on and off in the 70s. After that. And then starting in 1990, for about 10 years, he walked a marathon. And twice he, he walked in under six hours. That's commitment to like want to walk a marathon. Absolutely. Six hours on your feet. I mean, then again, didn't he walk like people have walked 100 miles, 24 hours? Well, yeah. And uh, he walked, uh, he, was, he, he was in a six-day race and he walked 300 and three miles at age 82, six days. Right, some of his age group records are incredible. Um, did he ever share with you or did you uncover in his records or memoirs, um, writings, what really drove him? Was uh, like, because he didn't just get injured and have his you know, speed career, he kept moving all, all the way up until he was um, much older. What, what, what really drove him, do you think? Wanted to excel. He wanted to excel and get the most out of himself. I mean, that's how he, that's how he did everything in life. Um, uh, at the highest level, both in a scholarly way and in an athletic way, he, he did it in a manner that he thought more was better. Um, but yeah, he, he, uh, he was trying to win. And he felt that this was the, this was the way to do it. Well, he certainly has left uh, a great legacy and running for few generations. And also through your work, we're learning 
a lot about, you know, people before him and then just what, you know, African-American runners were doing in long distance, which was kind of like, it's going to lead us now to the, our hot mic section of the program where. Okay. <laughs> For this segment, you're going to get two minutes of uninterrupted time to leave our listeners with your final thoughts. And, uh, uh, I've got my old school stopwatch here, so uh, it'll be just like the guy standing at the side of the track to time okay. you for minutes. But of course, <laughs> feel free to go on as long as you want. Yeah, I'll, I, I, I got two quotes. Uh, these are history quotes. Uh, the first, Carter G. Woodson, those who have no record of what their forebears have accomplished lose the inspiration which comes from the teaching of biography and history. Second quote from Marcus Garvey, uh, a people without the knowledge of their past history, origins, and culture is like a tree without roots. Uh, I've been motivated to uh, not only document my father's history, but the history of the sport. I, I saw these individuals invent this sport as a child. Um, dedicated individuals who uh, were out there every weekend, no matter what the weather was, and no, these were amateurs, no compensation of any kind. And uh, these, these individuals would be, their, their names would be lost in history uh, very easily. For example, the co-founder of New York Road Runners, John Sterner. You know, most people never heard of John Sterner, but my father would say he's the most important person in terms of getting the New York Road Runners club started. Um, my father didn't throw anything away, and uh, so we're fortunate to uh, uh, have this history. And uh, what I'm now seeking is to get other people involved, to d develop a team of uh, running history scholars to study the sport. Uh, I produced it this timeline, uh, but I ended in 1979, and, I, and I, I'm not planning on doing the additional years because I have other things to do. Uh, so I'm calling on others uh, to uh, take up this charge and uh, uh, become running history scholars uh, to do the research and be storytellers and tell these stories uh, and to inspire the next generation. Uh, so this is, this is about what my work is about this and uh, about properly preserving this history, digitizing this history so that it's, it's there 100 years from now. Well, maybe we'll get the University of Cincinnati to take that as a project since your father ran for them. Yes, and um, uh, there's a, the, I, I'm, I'm looking for places uh, to house this collection and uh, an athletic a school college would, would make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, ex I'm excited to, uh, I'm excited for the book. And when it comes out, I'm definitely going to pick up a copy. Thank Great. you so much, Mr. Corbett. Thanks it, for the opportunity. Tonight was a wealth of information. It was fascinating. And that brings us to the end of our show. I want to extend another very special thank you to Mr. Gary Corbett for joining us on this episode. And of course, to my co-hosts, Jamie and Inez, and Inez to you as well for being the producer because we never thank you for that. And finally, to our listeners. See you next time on Let's Get Uncomfortable.
Thanks for listening to Let's Get Uncomfortable. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on the App Store, and follow us on Spotify.